<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. These are interesting times and we are adapting, changing and pivoting as fast as the information is coming in. I'm not out of Extension Marketing Studios, nor am I sitting at John's Blast Podcast Studios these days. I'm at home in isolation. I'm actually in Andy's bedroom, my oldest daughter's room, which seems to be the quietest place in the house to do this. John is tuning in from his studios, ensuring that we've got proper sound. And Kelly McGonigal is being a total trooper right now, joining us from Palo Alto, California. Now, I came across Kelly watching her TED Talk on stress via YouTube. When you have over 20 million views and a hot topic, it draws people in. And that was definitely the case with me. And I loved her energy and her passion for the topic. And it all seemed to make sense. Little did I know that there was so much more to her, her career and the work she is doing now. So who is she? Well, Kelly is a research psychologist, lecturer at Stanford University and an award winning science writer. Her scientific research focused focuses on the mind-body connection and how to cultivate resilience and compassion. She is the author of the international bestseller, The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It, The Upside of Stress, Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It, Yoga for Pain Relief, and her most recent book, The Joy of Movement, How Exercise Helps You Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and courage. Kelly translates academic research into practical strategies for health, happiness, and personal success. Now, based on our current situation, I believe these talking tidbits from each of her books and all of her research will be a great conversation and an opportunity for you to shift your thinking and your habits in a much more positive way. So, Kelly, I am just thrilled to be able to have you joining us uh, today, and thank you so much. I mean, life is life is a little chaotic right now. Like, how how are you doing? How are you holding? because California was one of the first places hit. Yeah, I, you know, I'm doing well. I had family members who were sick and couldn't get tested, but seem to be doing well now. So that's probably the most important thing on my mind. Um, and, you know, it's funny, I, I'd set 2020 was supposed to be the year for me of really reconnecting to teaching within my community. I wanted to travel less. I wanted to focus more on the day-to-day teaching and community I've built here. And it's so funny right now that's been completely ripped out from underneath me. All my classes have been canceled. Um, I can't teach my dance classes. I can't teach my Stanford graduate students. Um, So it's a funny thing that is reminding me even more why it matters so much and and focusing on finding ways to connect virtually while looking very much forward to being able to connect with others face-to-face again. Oh, absolutely. I think for a lot of people, there was such an excitement heading into 2020. It just seemed like there was there was this information, there were, you know, podcasts and discussions. And especially if you're kind of in that health and wellness environment or that industry, it, it just felt like there's this big upward movement. Like people were feeling really good about the information that was being that was being kind of taught. And I, I, I do, I feel like we've all had like the floor just ripped from underneath us. And you would have seen it coming a lot earlier than the rest of us because you were starting to see this and especially with your background and knowledge, you started to see that we were going to be having issues 
and shutting things down a little bit earlier than some of us. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that's great about being in Silicon Valley is I do feel like I have, um, I get get like a different information stream. So I feel like I'm a little bit ahead of things. My sister also works for the Institute for the Future. She's a futurist. She actually did her first modeling of um, a global respiratory pandemic um, more than 10 years ago. I participated in that with her. So I do feel like we sort of have been um, preparing for this. and, uh, and at the same time, you're, like, you're never really ready. It feels like a totally different world we're living in. It's surreal. But I'm saying it's surreal. And to think that 10 years ago, your sister was doing something on this very topic. Is that is that weird? Like, I, I, I mean, I didn't know this heading into I, this, but I find that fascinating. Yeah, you know, my sister is a futurist. So I, I definitely feel like she gives me the insights. You know, that's her career is helping government and corporations and organizations, um, figure out where the future is headed and to prepare for different possible futures, both creating ideal futures and preparing for um, feared futures. And uh, and actually it's, you know, one of the things that she had discovered during this um, simulation, part of it was that the one thing that would make it get worse is that people would not be willing to social distance. Um, and that they really, there were a couple of things that people were breaking the rules for. One was school dances, like proms. Um, One was religious gatherings. And another were things like um, networking events, professional socializing. And it was so funny to watch initially when people refused to follow social distancing and stay-at-home orders. It was for things like that. People didn't want to miss their prom. They didn't want to miss the wedding. And where you saw like the initial contagions, it's been at these parties or these professional conferences. so, you know, I think she was tuned in very early on that we we're going to have oh to find God. a way to make social distancing meaningful and also, um, you know, to socialize at a distance rather than be isolated. Yeah. And I just think of like the spring breakers, right? They weren't willing to to give up that spring break and to be to be out with each other. I, I would I would love to be at your family's dinner table having had these discussions while things were going on. It, it, it must have been very fast. Fascinating. Was there an ability, though, to understand what was going to come with it? This, the fear, the anxiety, the unknown, all of the other emotions take away the social distancing of what our bodies, what we were actually going to be experiencing through something like this. Yeah, I think, you know, my work um, has looked at my, my work as a psychologist has looked at both how we experience stressful situations, how people form social support networks during important life transitions and stressful transitions, and also how we can sustain um, a mindset of interdependence, of empathy and compassion, uh, a willingness to help others and receive help from others. So I feel like this is, you know, this is a time where a lot of that is coming together. If you look at sort of probably the running theme of my work, whether it's the scientific research I've done or the books that I've written or the courses that I teach, I really have been trying to get people to embrace a mindset of interdependence for so long. The idea that it can actually be a relief and an inspiration to know how much we depend on one another, how our lives depend on countless strangers, as well as the people that we interact with daily and that we feel close to. And that that it is a strength to be able to lean into that rather than to try to tackle all challenges by yourself, to isolate yourself in times of stress, to feel like you alone can save the world, all the sort of the individualistic mindsets that can get us into trouble, particularly when things are really difficult. So um, this is definitely this is definitely a time um, time in our lives where that is becoming very evident. 
And that people who don't hold that interdependent mindset actually are the most scared because they don't want to believe, right, that they are not in control and also um, are less likely to get the moral uplift that comes from being able to witness the good in others, to get that moral elevation that comes from being able to see the beauty of interdependence when people are helping strangers or putting their lives at stake or, you know, the simple joys of how we choose to stay connected and express gratitude for one another. So, you know, this, this mindset, it's something that I talk about in everything from behavior change to how you deal with stress in your individual life, that this, this ability to lean into the idea that we are deeply connected, that nothing is a do-it-yourself project, um, that is really a source of, that is going to be a source of strength and resilience. No, I see this and it, it, it really makes sense. And yet you can see those who have embraced it maybe prior to something like this happening or those that are being forced to uh, to change. And, and I, I would think also in your research, change is very hard for people. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, to change, you know, your habits, to change that you're start going to start going to the gym, to change that you're going to start eating healthy. I mean, change on a typical day yeah. is very difficult. And now so, try changing. You can't leave your house. You're expected to homeschool your children. Um, yeah, you have to cook, all that other stuff. You have to find ways to, to take care of your physical health at home. Um, one of the things that, that I've been working with people, so like by accident, I happen to have launched a 40-day to positive change course for uh, a few hundred folks virtually, like right when all of this started. And at the time I thought most people would be choosing something like, I'm going to exercise more, you know, I'm going to eat more vegetables or, you know, that sort of thing. And now it's like, wow, we're being asked to completely reorganize our lives. This is massive behavior change. Um, and one of the things that that I seeded into that program, sort of the foundation of it is, there are a lot of different possible motivations for changing your behavior. Um, Often we come to behavior change from a place of shame or stigma or fear or a lack of agency and autonomy, like someone else is telling me I need to do this. And all of those motivations really undermine our capacity to change. We're much more likely to change when the motivation is um, a deeply held value, um, roles and relationships that are really important to us and we believe the change will help us serve better in that role or um, be better in that relationship or support the people we care about. And when it comes from a place of true autonomy and agency, like I endorse this, I choose this. And uh, so we're, you know, we're looking now at how to apply those ideas to this massive behavior change that we're being asked to undertake. Um, And, you know, in a very simple way, this idea that people are being asked to stay at home and to make sacrifices and everyone is making sacrifices, whether you've so many people I know have completely lost all income because they are independent contractors or creative professionals um, or gig, you know, members of the gig economy. They're people who are losing access to um, so many important resources and we're all being asked to stay at home. And uh, you can feel, you can resist that, you can be angry about it, you can feel that the motivation is to, you know, prevent the most unwanted thing like getting infected and giving it to your family and killing all your loved ones, those motivations are going to make this such a more difficult time. Whereas what I've been encouraging people to do is, you know, at the end of every day to practice um, a reflection of gratitude for everyone on this planet, especially like people in your community, in your country who are taking difficult steps in order to protect you and to just try to do a contemplation where you appreciate how many countless people are sacrificing um, for you and your loved ones. 
and to appreciate, like go through your day and think about what you did and to understand that you may have had a positive effect on countless lives you'll never know. Mm-hmm. But that, like, just your ability to stay at home today, um, that sacrifice may have saved someone's loved one, may have saved someone's child, may have saved someone's... And like to really understand the the best possible outcome of a behavior that is difficult. It's the same thing I teach people to do when you're you know, trying to decide whether to exercise or eat a vegetable, like to imagine as you do this, that you are investing in your future self and a future that you care about, that it is an expression of a value that you hold deeply. But I really feel like now more than ever, this is going to influence our ability to, as we move forward, as we move on, to look back at our behaviors with pride rather than um, a sense of moral distress or moral harm, moral injury, to be able to have a a sense of meaning for this time, to experience post-traumatic growth rather than only traumatization. Um, A lot of, I think, the framing that we give to our individual behaviors right now and what we choose to see in others. Can Can we take time to appreciate the good in others? This is gonna play a very big role in how this experience affects us. And, and again, that's sort of another kind of core uh, core reason why mindset matters so much is it, it changes not only our ability to make, you know, do behaviors, but it changes how we understand our life experience and the narrative that we tell. And that in itself is so important to our well-being. Uh, like, honestly, Kelly, you've said like 10 things just now that just there's, they hit so close to home. And I, I really hope that the listeners kind of, um, it's almost like you need to be taking notes during this this podcast right now. The the going to bed at, or thinking at the end of the day, instead of it all being kind of anxiety and I have no income and what am I doing? And I'm, I'm forced to be at home with the kids. Uh, you know, I didn't do the right thing with the, you know, go, you can have like this negative list, but if you sit there and go, I might not know it, but me not being out today could have had a domino effect of the lives that I have saved or didn't in fact, like, it's such a different way of thinking about it. But when people are looking for solutions right now as to how to get themselves out of the discomfort and the unknown and the scarcity and all the negative things that usually bring on so much anxiety, like what a beautiful way of yeah. looking at it. And, you know, it's, it's so one of the reasons I've been thinking about this a lot is um, in my research, looking at how to sustain compassion. We know that compassion satisfaction is really important if you are going to stay involved in, in something that requires you to be brave, that requires you to tolerate distress, that requires you to be kind and generous. Um, you know, so I've worked a lot with healthcare professionals, for example, and how to sustain compassion and empathy, even when you're surrounded by suffering and a lot of stress in, in your professional and personal life. And um, one of the things we know is you have to, at the end of the day, feel like what you did made a difference. That's the compassion satisfaction. And, you know, so in working with healthcare providers, there are a lot of ways to do that that are physical, to have a moment of interaction with the patient or the family or with your colleagues. And right now, a lot of us, we are doing good, but we aren't getting the warm glow. That is what actually makes compassion or sacrifice sustainable. Like, you know, if your kid is sick and you're able to sing your kid a song or do something that makes them smile, you immediately get that warm glow. And that that rush of dopamine and oxytocin and endorphins that makes you wanna do it again and gives you hope for the future. And right now, a lot of people are being asked to make sacrifices. It actually includes healthcare professionals, by the way, too, who are dealing with tremendous stress. But people are being asked to, to do things that are 
uh, an act of compassion, but it's really hard to get the immediate warm glow because all you ha- all you hear are bad news or you just don't see the tangible response of it. You don't know whose life you saved. And so this is when mindset, again, becomes so important right. because it's true, but unless you put it in your mind and, and you allow your, your body and your brain to have that natural response of appreciation, um, we can burn out very quickly. I'm also thinking too, sometimes we're used to doing things and being um, rewarded, yeah. right? If you did a good job, you got, you know, you did something good at the office and you got, you know, a recommendation or you got rewarded or you got a thank you or you got like a pat on the shoulder saying good job. Like even as we are doing things that are likely helping, we are not getting the reciprocal keep at it. You're doing great. Yeah. You know, the and it actually I for think. many people, it feels like we're getting the opposite. We're, we're trying <laughs> yes. hard and we're getting worse news every day because of the lag between our behavior change and the, the positive result. This, by the way, is true for all sorts of behavior change. So much like, you know, when you're trying to quit vaping or smoking, for example, there's not a lot of reward in that process until much further down the line, you have to tolerate a lot of distress. So again, part of this is, is framing and mindset and also taking time to appreciate yourself and making, you know, making the step to appreciate others. You know, for those of us who are able to do that, to reach out to colleagues, to friends, to family, to thank them for what they're doing. I mean, gratitude itself is actually an emotion that strengthens relationships and increases hope. That's sort of the primary like, biological um, mech- reason human beings have a gratitude instinct, a capacity for gratitude, is when you feel it and when you express it, it strengthens relationships, but it also increases um, hope and positive motivation. So it's one of the reasons why I actually use gratitude as a, like a mindset intervention when people are trying to make difficult behavior changes or trying to deal with really stressful circumstances in their lives, not because gratitude just makes you feel good, like it's a nice thing, but it actually puts you in a physiological state that makes it easier to take difficult but meaningful actions and that help you um, maintain a feeling of connection to others. So gratitude is also a really important mindset, you know, as many of us are feeling more disconnected yeah. and, and despairing. You know what? I've, I, well, I, I mean, a lot of my listeners know because I, I really started to take medit. I started meditating about a year ago and then just more recently actually started with gratitude, like really being aware and and taking a, a moment every day to write down, you know, 10 things that I'm grateful for. And it's interesting to see how that list has shifted <laughs> over the last couple of weeks of what I'm thankful for, you know, and, um, and I, it, to be honest with you, I think a lot of it went from material items and things that like I enjoyed, like my coffee, like sometimes I would write like my Starbucks today just was amazing. But in looking outside, like right now, I'm grateful for the people that I that I realize are doing a lot more things. And so it's interesting to see, even as I was writing things, to notice the things that I was writing were changing. Yeah. And I think that's actually, it's a beautiful thing to notice because when people are trying to design gratitude interventions that will really support people, um, research suggests that gratitude that reflects a mindset of interdependence rather than um, primarily an appreciation for things and pleasures um, that that is the type of gratitude that is most sustaining and most likely to lead to an upward spiral of other positive emotions like hope or courage and strengthening, you know, social support networks. Um, so in a way, it's like you're noticing you're noticing one possible 
upside of the circumstance we're in, Mm -hmm. that this is helping you appreciate things where that appreciation in and of itself is going to be something that if you're able to sustain it, even when the crisis is over, like to have have made that subtle shift is something that will will really support you moving forward into whatever the future is. In that response, you said that you mentioned the words hope, you mentioned courage, um, and also you know, in what you're saying, because I know hope and courage comes into the joy of movement book, which I definitely, I know. These are, I definitely oh, want to get to. So hope and courage is in really uh, is the foundation of all my books. But this is the first time I've convinced the publisher, like every single book I've written, I'm like, could we get the word like hope and courage and connection into the title? And I've lost every time. And finally, I like threw a fit at my publisher's office. We had a two hour meeting where they had changed the title of the book to things I'm not even going to tell you. And I'm like, Come on now. This is the time. This is the book. We are getting the words hope and courage and connection in the title because that's what this is about. And that's what my work is about. Um, so go ahead. But I just, I'm so no, excited well, that we finally no, I, got it into a subtitle. I can imagine. And, you know, even to think that you had to have this argument with the publisher when you know your work and you know you know the results that you're looking for from the people who are going to take the time to read it and consume it. I can imagine how frustrating it would be in that this one came with the joy of movement and that you were able to get this title actually in there. And I know, you know, like we've talked a little bit about stress and there's a lot of things that you have worked on, but I, I know even in our, in our brief kind of conversations, this one was really important to you. There was, there was messaging in this book that you, that I think you really live by and that's part of your life. So A, I want to kind of launch into that, but right off the top, what I thought was interesting is health psychologist. Like, how do you, I, I love the title, but like, how do you explain that to people? Like what, what is the work and what are you trying to get people to do when you say what it is you do? Yeah. So I started to use that term when I, I the very first um, course I ever taught at Stanford by myself was called health psychology. And that is the field that is interested in studying the mind-body relationship and how psychological factors influence physical health, as well as how physical health influences emotional well-being and and social relationships. And I I was particularly interested when I was a graduate student in understanding um, how how healthcare can use psychological understanding to really improve the lives of patients or support families. So my interest in health psychology really is, is from that that basic understanding that human beings are not like minds housed in bodies, that that the mind is is in the body in this very complex way where your emotions and your thoughts are biological realities that influence everything from your immune function to your ability to interact and express yourself with others. And it's just, it's a, we are complicated biological creatures. And so to me, health psychology is about understanding and embracing that, like being fascinated to know that your muscles, like when you, when you contract your muscles during exercise, that they secrete antidepressant molecules into your bloodstream. That's part of what being a health psychologist is. It's like, that's, that's phenomenal. And it's also, it's, uh, I think one of the reasons I was drawn to health psychology I mean, in my own life, so I've I've had health issues my whole life. I have chronic pain. So I've always known that physical suffering is a big part of people's lives. And so the other aspect of being a health psychologist that has always appealed to me is this understanding that, I mean, I don't want to sound um, demoralizing, but that suffering is real and inevitable and that most people walk through the world experiencing often a suffering that's inv- invisible to others, whether they're holding p- physical pain 
depression, anxiety, grief, addiction. And so part of what I love about health psychology is also it's going right to the place of suffering. That often if you look at the the research that health psychologists do or the work that they do, they go to communities where people are suffering, where they're grieving, where they're going through cancer treatment, where they're living with chronic pain, where they're dealing with addiction. And, and my goal is to look for ways to not only relieve that suffering, but also make sure that joy and meaning can coexist with that suffering. So I guess that's, that's how I feel about health psychology. We are complex biological creatures and um, let's go right to the point of suffering and see what we can do to, to create joy and meaning. Oh my God. Like, see, you guys can't see me, but like, I'm smiling. Like I have like this grin from like ear to ear because I'm so like, I live this, like, you know, and, and, and I, I wanted, I didn't realize how much you suffer or you suffered, you know, as growing up with chronic pain or that you're, that you're doing that. But for me, and I know, and this is why I'm so big on it with like people who follow me and the listeners, like, for me, exercise, for me, moving my body is the most healing, even when I'm sore, even when I'm down, even when I'm not feeling well, like I physically feel a chemical release that allows me to focus better, work better, love better. So, but it's so uh, I love that try. you say love better. We have to talk about that. Sorry to interrupt, but like yeah. I have to put a giant for listeners, put a giant star next to that. <laughs> Did you hear that? She said, love better. We're going to talk about that. Okay. So I... I have been around this. This has been my world. And so, and I know that when other people experience it, how much better their lives will be. But yet I find so often it's like you have to shake people. They have to experience real lows or, you know, or health scares or anything to be able to realize that they have to shift. And yet they're the possibilities of such a wonderful life based on just, as you mentioned, like moving the body, like, and I know that we carry our emotions in the body, we carry our trauma in our bodies, like, to be able to kind of move it out and get it circulating. Like, yeah. do you find so that people come to you for that? Or it's like, you have to shake them also? Well, to say, yeah, like, it's yeah, a battle. let's not know. It's not a battle. Okay. Well, it's, it might be a battle for individuals. So I'm, I'm okay. going to come at this with some empathy. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay. There are a lot of reasons why people resist movement or exercise or physical activity, whatever you want to call it. People have had traumatic experiences in gym class. They have been shamed at the gym with people making comments about what they look like or their size. Um, they have may have injuries or illnesses in which they've experienced physical pain through movement. Um, and also it can be hard to marshal energy, you know? So for example, when you experience depression or grief, there are changes in your brain that literally reduce the, your capacity to move that the dopaminergic system is not just about motivation. It's also about physical movement. So there are, there are many life circumstances where you literally have less ability to move your body and you will get less pleasure from doing it. And yet, at the same time, we know from the research that exercise is often maybe one of the only things you can do to actually jumpstart the dopaminergic system to increase motivation and pleasure. But it's it's that's where the battle is, is that, you know, if you're somebody who suffers from depression, although exercise may be the single best thing you can do it uh, in combination with anything else you're doing, like medication or therapy, like like that you could choose to do today, it's probably the single best thing you could do. And also it's really hard. And uh, you may not experience a runner's high the first time you try to exercise because your brain has to learn through the experience of exercise how to experience pleasure and movement 
And that actually expands your brain's capacity to experience pleasure and motivation and connection in all aspects of your life. But you have to get through this part where often it's hard and it's not fun and your body is still tired, but you didn't get the endorphin rush that you were promised. So I want to start with a, a, a place of empathy and at the same time acknowledge that that uh, there is, I mean, there is no doubt from the evidence, epidemiological evidence, experimental evidence, brain studies, whatever you, whatever evidence you want, people who move more are happier, they report more meaning in their lives, they have better relationships with other people. And if you aren't active and you become more active, you, you experience these benefits. So it doesn't only work in the direction of like, if you're happy, you exercise. No, if you exercise more, you will become happier. Um, there's just overwhelming evidence for that. Every age across the lifespan, every country that's ever been studied. Um, and even if you also have serious challenges to movement, like mental health challenges, depression, grief, addiction, uh, often especially if you experience these things, um, if you have physical challenges, if you have disabilities, if you have chronic pain, if you have autoimmune disorders, even in hospice care, some of the most amazing work I came across researching this book was um, looking at the use of exercise in hospice care at the end of life with people who know that you know lifting that weight is not going to make their cancer go away. And the question was like, why are they doing this? Why are people choosing in hospice care to exercise in the, sort of the limited capacity that their bodies are still able to do? And over and over, what people were saying is uh, exercise is a moment when I know I'm alive. It's how I experience life, my life force. And in that moment, I feel hope. And in that moment, I feel connected to others. And I think that, you know, for a lot of people in our culture, there's this idea that ex you do exercise in order to live forever, lose weight, look great. And uh, one of the things I'm, I'm trying, one of the mindset shifts I'm trying to help, help people find is that I don't care what you weigh. This is not about changing your body to make it acceptable to yourself or others. This is about engaging with life and movement is how we engage with life. And if you move regularly in whatever way works for your body and your life, you will experience more vitality and hope and connection with others. That's how the human brain works. And uh, it doesn't matter what body you're in now, there's a version that's available to you. And uh, I think just our culture has it so wrong and confused. And that's one of the reasons why people resist exercise is because they are used to thinking of exercise as a punishment for enjoying life rather than a way to enjoy life. Like, oh, you ate too much, now you need to burn it off, all that. It's just, there's confusion about what it's for, so. What do you consider is, like, first off, Kelly, I love like everything that you're saying. It's just like, like I'm grinning. But what would you say when you talk about movement? I, are some people just assuming that what you're talking about is being on a treadmill, running on a treadmill and lifting weights at the gym? Like, how did how do you express it? Because I know for you, it's through dance, it's through yoga. Like, what do you consider this physical aspect of our lives being? So movement itself is basically what is, is any way that humans engage with life other than thinking, thinking or dreaming, right? Maybe praying. Everything is a movement. The fact that we are talking right now, that's a movement. The fact that you are smiling is a movement. Um, cooking, cooking lunch for yourself will be a movement. Hugging your child is a movement. Um, so movement can be essentially defined as the way that human beings 
sort of engage with and experience life. Now, when I talk about the joy of movement, I'm talking a little bit more specifically about things that I, I encourage people to use their whole body to engage with life or whatever parts of your body still move. And I actually love the word exercise. Um, we did have a debate about whether to use the word exercise in the book title because my publishers were worried that people hate exercise so much they wouldn't buy a book that had the word exercise in it. But the definition of exercise is simply movement done for the sake of movement. So if you go for a walk because you want to go for a walk, that's exercise. If you go for a walk because you need to walk to work, that's movement, right? If you are lifting heavy things in the gym because you enjoy how it feels to feel you sense your own strength and you're interested in, in strengthening your body and your heart, that's exercise. If you're lifting heavy things because you're moving from one apartment to the other, that's movement. And so exercise is just a subset of movement where there, it's not a transaction, right? That the reason you're doing it, it's because you are choosing to move because of how it makes you feel, because of the environment it puts you in. So, you know, exercise like, like sports, right? That you're not doing it, well, unless you're a professional, you're not doing it because someone's paying you to do it. You're doing it because you want to do it. So really that's all exercise is. And the, the ideal form of exercise for each person will be the form of movement that they want to do for its own sake, not like the thing you've heard will rip your abs or the sort of the minimum dose you think you can do, you can get away with to create heart health for yourself a decade later. Exercise should be a movement that you choose to do because of how it makes you feel and how it makes you feel about yourself and, uh, and how it connects you to communities that you care about. So it could be going to the gym. It could be um, gardening in a community garden. It could be dancing with your kid in the living room. It could be going for a walk. Um, it could be going out in nature. Um, it's it's however you like to move your body. And a lot of people love exercise. I can't even, I know you're like, let me just say one last thing about this. I can't tell you how many um, interviews I've done for this book where the host expresses with relief, phew, so you're saying I don't have to run a marathon. Now, I'm not a runner. I've never run a marathon. I don't know that I ever will. It seems unlikely. But let me just say that Yes, this also includes running marathons. There are many people for whom that is meaningful and joyful and a way to experience their own persistence and meaning and grow as a human being and connect to their communities and feel supported. And uh, I just want to put it all out on the table that like there's nothing wrong with hard, challenging forms of movement. And you can also experience joy and meaning and connection through calm, relaxing, sort of easy and convenient forms of movement. It's all of that. Okay. I'm going to just put you on the spot right now because as people are going to be listening to this podcast, the ability, maybe yes, they can get out and go for a walk and they can maybe go out for a run or, you know, take the kids. I can't even take the kids to the park right now, but we are noticing and the way that you're talking is we need to be moving. But right now people are restricted to their homes, yes. to their family rooms or their basements or in their tiny apartments. Like everyone's got a different situation. How critical is movement right now in the situation of life that we are currently dealing with? So critical. Let me tell you. So um, one of my friends posts her step counts on her Instagram live and she was showing how since um, they've been at stay at home orders, um, her step count has gone from over an average of like 13,000 a day to 3000 a day. And here's why that's really alarming. There are actually experiments that have been done taking people who average about eight or 9,000 steps a day, which is more than the, the typical American, but it's not like people who are exercising, you know, extreme amounts. 
um, and then ask them to reduce their daily step count, their activity levels to about 5,000 steps a day. And in those experiments, almost universally, it's near 100%. People report an increase in depression and anxiety. They have more trouble sleeping. They actually report decreased sense of meaning and satisfaction in life. Um, and they, they feel more exhausted and less, less energy, even though they're being less active. So when I saw that on uh, my friend's Instagram story, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is going to have serious mental health um, consequences for people. Because even if you weren't a regular exerciser and you reduce your activity levels, because activity is so important to our day-to-day mental health that you know, when you're active, it gives you adrenaline, it gives you endorphins, it gives you dopamine, it just helps you feel hopeful and alive. Um, so there's so many things that people can do at home. Right. But what the the thing is, though, is that the research is already showing this. Oh, like this yeah. isn't we're not guessing, we're not kind of saying, oh, this is likely gonna happen. Like the research is already showing that even based on those decreased steps that people were weren't taking when they had the ability to and yeah. life was working as normal, they were already experiencing that. Yeah. And now we are being forced into that situation. Yeah. So how are how can we how can we rectify that? Like, and, and I yeah. think a lot of people know, like I have now started hosting Monday to Fridays, 9am. I do a full Facebook live workout and I've had great response from people just saying it's forcing them to do it. It's making them accountable. You know, I'm putting myself through the exact same thing. And I'm like, listen guys, I'm not a trainer and you'll hear me grunting and like trying not to cheat my way through some of the exercise, but it's, I feel like in a, in a sense, it's a bit of building a community. Like we're yeah. all in this together. But that's just people that I know are, are seeking something. There's millions of people out there who are going to go, ah, I guess I have an excuse now not to go to the gym or to do anything because I don't I'm know. I, I would, right? Honestly, and, and that's the, have, my biggest fear is that people do that. I, I hope that's not happening. It seems to be the opposite from what I can tell and that people are more than ever starting to realize how important it is. So here's the encouragement that I'm giving people. One is and this actually has a lot to do with the benefits of movement in any circumstance. So we know that movement is important for your own mental health because of the biology, how movement changes your brain chemistry, how it supports brain health, and how it makes you feel about yourself. So one thing is to think about movement you can do every day that is for you, that produces the emotions that you need that are healing to you. Some people right now need calming movement. Some people need movement that puts them in a state of focus and flow to turn off the worries and anxiety. Some people like me, what I've discovered, even just in the week and a half that I've been at home and unable to, to teach my regular classes, um, I've been doing trial and error. By far, what I need right now is intensity, which is funny because I am not drawn to that. You're usually, usually like yoga and dance, right? Yeah, which I mean, is so more it's intense flow. to get your heart rate yeah. up. But it's joyful. Like for me, it's I, you know, I want to throw my arms in the air like I'm throwing confetti and sing along. And what I've been doing a lot this week is uh, less meals on demand, grit cardio, and body combat, which is their kickboxing cardio training, and core works, which is like really strong, hard, intense core training. This is not chill stuff. Um, and that is has been helping me connect to my courage. It the intensity of it is helping me stay vital instead of this, this feeling of like being stuck. So anyway, so the first, the first thing I want to encourage people to do is to figure out a form of movement that makes you feel the way you need to feel right now. And the other thing is to find a form of exercise or movement that connects you to others. We know that the, the neurochemistry of movement 
is a mechanism for bonding with others. As we could talk for hours about why this is the, the case, but I'll just like get right to the spoiler. When you get your heart rate up a little bit, when you move with other people, it increases brain chemicals that are bonding hormones, oxytocin, endorphins, endocannabinoids um, that help you feel more connected to others. So right now in a time when we're feeling disconnected, exercising with other people is going to be one of the most powerful ways we can feel like we are strengthening those relationships and bonds. So maybe that means like ask your kid, do you know TikTok? Like, are your kids on TikTok? I mean, you probably know if your kids are on TikTok, but like to have them teach you how to make a TikTok dance video, if that's something they're doing, do it with them. There's so many great TikTok videos now of like parents emerging for the first time being like, what? Yeah, yeah so you got it. I got um, it. I have two, yeah, two teens. I, or, I get it. Or like, you know, if you, if you're uh, as a family, you watch American Ninja Warrior, make some ridiculous obstacles in your home, you know, turn over some couch cushions, send your kids flying. I mean, really, whatever risk you're willing to take, like have your own obstacle ninja course at home. Um, and then the kind of thing that you're talking about. So exercising with people on zoom on skype so many people are doing instagram live um, workouts um i have been making videos for my dance students and sending them videos um this is they're sort of as a community they're more likely to click a youtube link than to watch my instagram live um but then and then emailing and like asking for song requests and giving shout outs in the videos like i got this song for you so and so um that looking for ways to stay connected to community and that that your workout when you're doing it socially does not have to feel like a workout this is something big i want people to understand because you know sometimes with the technology it doesn't work as great or maybe you feel like you're not getting the same like kind of workout you would get if you were out by yourself or you were you know in a group fitness class in in a live space and that's kind of not the point like you you're doing this for the connection and the community and then also have some movement where you just know this is what feeds you. Um, and what I usually tell people sort of independent of crisis is, um, so when I'm telling people like what your ideal workout is, so you want to experience the feel better effect. That is, you should feel better when you're done than before you did it. And that's your role. It's not, don't look at your, you know, your, if you, I don't even have one of those fancy watches. Yeah, neither do I, I could care less how many calories I burn in a workout and I will never care. But if you previously cared, I'm telling you, don't care now. You want to go for the feel better effect. You feel better afterwards, whether you feel more hopeful, more energized, whatever you want, less anxious. Um, you should um, experience a state of flow while you're doing it. That is, you notice that your mind goes to a better place. And that could also be feeling a sense of connection, right? But like while you're actually doing it, you want to have an experience that strengthens you for the rest of the day as well. So maybe you feel good about the fact that you're sticking with something that's difficult or you feel connected to other people or you just notice that your mind is less ruminative when you're doing your yoga or your gardening or whatever. And then the last thing is 30 minutes every day. Um, and I, this is different than if you go to like you know, health organizations and they'll say, well, you need like 170 minutes and you can do it like two days a week or three. No, you need to do it every day. This is, this is so crucial for your mental health. You go a day without getting your heart rate up a little bit, without using your muscles through their range of motion, you will be more depressed. <laughs> you will feel more disconnected from others. And so I, I'm hoping that if one thing comes out of this crisis, is that people will realize movement is as critical to your daily well-being as eating and sleeping. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know about you, but if you don't get in a workout, does your husband kind of look at you and go, have you gone to the gym because you're being a little bitchy? Because my he husband will let me say to me, like, he can tell when I haven't worked out because my my demeanor is different. He, I, my, I'll say go to the gym because then he won't be so bitchy. I, I have a little gym in my house. That's I have a little room. I turned the dining room into an <laughs> exercise space. Um, so he doesn't say go to the gym, but he will say, Kelly, I think you should do some combat. Yeah. And he's been particularly encouraging of me doing this high intensity exercise, um, being stuck at home with someone with an anxious yeah. temperament. Uh, usually he gets some relief, but he's at home now all day too. So he gets to see my full uh, yeah. uh, psychological yeah. temperament. That was like normally over the 20 years, like, you know, he'll, he'll get, he'll know my moods and if I have, or if I haven't been the one thing that I, that I want to get to. And, and I think this is making so much sense to those that are already involved in being physically active and moving. But what do you tell the people who now are home are accustomed to coming home from work, sitting on the couch, not having the energy. And that's something that I learned when you sit all day, you actually don't have energy yeah. to get up and to move, which is something that I learned when I was moving all day. And then all of a sudden I might, you know, my role changed and I was sitting at a computer for a bit. I was tired and it was harder to get going, to get moving and to get up. So it's to, I want a kind of a message to those, those people and all, always the ones that says, I don't have enough time. Everyone's like, I would do it, but I don't have enough time. Well, guess what? you have all the time right now. Like, yeah, well, there's you- some people also, you know, now that they're homeschooling and trying to do their job. I mean, there are some people who are experiencing, uh, less time than they previously had. But, um, so one thing I would say, t- two things important that you are pointing out. One is that there is this virtuous cycle and this sort of cycle of downward cycle where when you are more active, because of how it changes your chemistry, your, your brain chemistry, your, what's in your bloodstream, Movement begets more energy and being sedentary decreases energy. There's, there's until you get to extreme limits, like go run an ultra marathon, you're going to be tired afterward. But when we're talking about the type of movement that most people do in everyday life, especially if it's small increases, like you don't go from doing nothing to trying to exercise for three hours a day. If you just become a little bit more active or you go from being sedentary to moving your body for even something like three to five minutes, the having more energy is the most consistent effect that people will report. Um, so you know, we'll for decades, there's research on this. Okay, so for three, to, so would you just say if you've been sedentary, like three to five minutes yes. will I make a put difference? Put on a song you like. It's the perfect length. We know that dose works. The length of a song is effective at increasing energy and and hope or positive emotions. So you don't have to make it a workout. And there's so many things you can do with your body to the length of a song. You can do some stretches, you can make stuff up, you can do things that are actual exercises if you want, like planks and push-ups and squats. You can run around the house like a crazy person, you know, make your dog or your cat chase you, be funny with your kids. Um, there's, a, you know, and, and to a song and particularly if it's a song you like, I mean, we didn't even get a chance to talk about how moving to music is particularly good at improving people's moods. So playlists right now are everything. Um, so that's one thing I would say, and that you, you cannot trust how you feel when you have been sedentary, your brain is lying to you. It is like stuck in quicksand. And if you've been sedentary, your brain will say, it's too hard. I don't have the energy. I'm tired. And, um, your brain is just not being your friend in that moment. You have to be a better friend to yourself and start to get over that, that, that barrier, that sort of that activation threshold to do something, to experience the benefit. 
Um, and this, by the way, is true. Like everyone experiences this, even when I talk to professional athletes who are in love with exercise, like most of them, every morning they wake up, they still are like, uh, and then they're like, oh, okay, no, I want to do this. Um, so it's all of us. But the other thing I wanted to say, um, you, <laughs> there were two things you said. One was about the, not having the energy. What was the other thing you said that was uh, so important? That that well the, the not having the energy not time, or, not that, that, time. That a lot of people are like you know they say to me you know I don't have the time yeah. I don't have the time but I love hey you've got three to five minutes to enjoy a song I like that but what else yes. yeah add to that the other thing I want to say is so much of what we need to do in t- in this current time movement can fill that role so especially to parents who are having to figure out how to help their kids. Um, and especially if your kids are younger, I know kids in high school and it's a slightly different sort of academic pressure, but you've got middle school or younger kids. Some of the most important education that can happen is play, creativity, self-expression, and just being active in your body. So like you are you are getting so much done and also connecting with, with them that this is the time to be like, forget the math worksheets for 20 minutes, let's play in our house. Um, and if you don't have kids, right, but the same is true for you. We know that that being physically active is one of the most important things you can do to sustain your focus, your creativity, your physical health, and to start to think of it as like something you put on your calendar, you know, literally or figuratively, that is an absolute must do that is as important as anything else that you might be taking care of. Even well, if you're a caregiver yeah. right now, I mean, even for people who are caregiving, exercise is fundamental to your ability to sustain what you're doing. And you mentioned right off the top, especially in the title, you know, when we talk about hope, mm-hmm. uh, you know, encourage connection. So where, what are we, what are we hoping? Like, I, you know, there's a part of us right now that, that I hope that we've kind of turned on a switch for people or they're looking at it a little bit differently. But when we, you talk, you know, I, I got even, you said something about like her bloodstream, how her blood is working different, right? Like there's, there's the science to it. And then there's just the emotion of how people are going to come out of it. So where do you see, and why did you want hope and connection and courage included in this? Where do you see that fall in? Yeah. So, I mean, the reason that I wanted those words in the title is because that's, that's just my mission in life. I want people to be able to experience themselves as brave and compassionate and caring and cared for, and to be able to engage in life with a sense of meaning and purpose and joy. So it's not, it's like, one of the things I've, I've found is that people sometimes are, they have these suspicions that I'm trying to sell exercise and I'm looking for a way to sell exercise. Like, like my deepest dream is to help you lose weight or lower your blood pressure. And so I will convince you that it will give you hope and courage and connection to like somehow persuade you to exercise so that you'll actually lose weight or lower your blood pressure. And that couldn't be further from the truth. The reason I'm promoting movement is because my experience and the science says this works. And I, as a health psychologist, even when I was writing books about other topics or you know, I researched meditation. So a lot of people know me as somebody who argues for the benefits of meditation. When people have directly asked me my entire career, if I can only do one thing to improve my psychological well-being, what should it be? I always say exercise. And if you don't want to exercise, I will usually something like adopt a pet or volunteer. Uh, meditation is a little bit down the list. But um, 
so the reason those words are in the title is because this this is the consequence of being more active with your body. Um, and that is, and it, when you have that mindset, again, it just, it changes your experience of it. You know, one of the reasons people don't like exercise or movement is if you start it from the mindset of it's, it's from a place of fear about your future health or shame about the state of your body um, or being criticized by others, stigmatized. If that's, that's a big part of fueling your movement that will color your experience of it. So I hope that that mindset will, even if you think, if you're listening now and you think you hate movement, to find a form of movement that connects you to someone or something you already care about, whether it's nature or your kid or your pets or music, and to trust that it, this is something you're doing that connects you to the human capacity for basically every form of joy. Mm, I love that. And as we're in the pursuit of joy, I think I want to bring it back just because we have just a couple minutes left um, to the fact that while joy and all these things are what we are, we'd love to be able to attain, there's also a fear right now of that we are dealing with an over, overwhelming sense of and stress. And so I know even in the talk that you did, it was finding the upside of it, that there was so much science behind how negatively people looked at stress, but those who looked at it in a more positive way, like it was tenfold a benefit on the other side. So how can we kind of bring this conversation to a close, knowing that we are in one of the most stressful, most anxious situations we've ever found ourselves in? Yeah, so stress, so find the upside, like how in any of this, I know, do we find that, you know, it's almost offensive, by the way, I didn't choose the title of that book, either. It's almost <laughs> offensive to tell people to find the upside. It is offensive to tell people to find the upside in stressful circumstances, where people are losing jobs and loved ones and security for the future. So um, please forgive me for that, that language that is, you know, the idea that like stress is good for you. Um, the real message is that when you cannot avoid stress, it is so helpful to to know and believe that even circumstances you would never choose for yourself can activate human strengths that you have and that can bring out the good in you. And there are three mindsets that seem to be really important for helping people deal with stress, particularly stress that they can't avoid or control, like this pandemic we're going through. One is to believe that stress can give you energy and you can choose how you want to harness that energy. So even symptoms of anxiety, like you feel your heart pounding or you're having trouble sleeping at night, part of what's happening is you are being energized because your body and brain are like, this is a moment that matters, so we need to be ready to do something. And people who, who view stress as energy they can harness to find a direction to point it in that is consistent with their goals and their values um, tend to have a much healthier and more skillful response to stress than people who believe the primary goal is to reduce the symptoms of stress to calm down. That's when you're more likely to see people think, well, it's better to just be drunk so I don't feel so stressed out, or I'm gonna you know, take a bath and squeeze my stress ball and pretend this isn't real to try to calm down. So that's the first mindset, to believe that you can't always control your inner experiences, whether it's your your guts turning a little bit or your heart pounding or your, you know, your racing thoughts, and to understand that that is energy and you still have a choice about how you wanna harness it and to look for something you can choose in that moment to do that feels consistent with your most important goals and values. The second mindset is to know that a lot of stress we face is bigger than self. And the idea that you can handle stress all on your own 
You don't need to share it with others. You don't need to tell other people about it or the belief that like you're the only one going through it. These are really harmful stress mindsets. And so a stress mindset that is helpful is to recognize whatever you're going through, you aren't the first and you aren't alone. And also to look for people who care about you and support you to reach out for help and to look for other people that you can support. This is that mindset of interdependence that we started with. Um, This is hugely helpful for people under um, extraordinary stress to know that you aren't alone, to look for the sources of support that are available to you, and to continue to experience yourself as someone who has something to offer, to have that moment of uplift, that compassion satisfaction, that you're able to help someone else out as well, and to have this sense that we are stronger together extremely important. And we know that, I mean, there's brain chemistry to it and we won't get into all of that, but um, to have that bigger than self mindset. And the last mindset is to believe that humans have the capacity to learn and grow. And in stressful circumstances, you are activating that capacity. In fact, one of my my favorite um, research papers about why do humans have a stress response that is activated all the time not just in emergencies. Like why do human beings have a stress response a hundred times a day to some degree? Maybe it's not a full on fight or flight emergency, but like we activate stress hormones and the, the brain chemistry of stress all the time, not even during a pandemic, any day of your life, you are stressed out a very high percentage of that time. Why? And um, the researchers concluded that stress is the biological mechanism for learning from experience. So when you are stressed, you are increasing your brain plasticity. You are you are basically priming yourself to learn from that experience. And you can play a role in what you choose to learn. So that same capacity, you know, there are things you can learn from stress that aren't always helpful. PTSD is an example of that. But there are also things we can choose to learn from stress that include resilience and post-traumatic growth and strengthening our values and making changes in our lives and learning from our mistakes and embracing spiritual wisdom. I mean, there's a lot, there are a lot of ways that we can learn and grow from stress. And so simply knowing that stress is activating your capacity to learn and grow, you don't have to figure out how, like in this moment right now, you can be totally overwhelmed. And at the same time, just have an idea. You don't have to learn and grow today. Just the idea that there's a possibility that a year from now, you'll look back on this moment and be glad it's over. And also um, feel proud of yourself for a way that it woke something up in you that you value today. Or you'll be uh, in awe of how it strengthened a relationship with a family member that you leaned on in this time. That you, you have the understanding that even out of crises and tragedies, there are humans have this natural capacity to learn and grow. That's the last mindset that's super helpful. So, um, I, you know, they're all really relevant to the time (laughs) we're living in. Uh, it really is. Uh, Kelly, you're brilliant. I think, uh, the passion that you show for just a human behavior, but the science behind it is, is fascinating because there's an understanding of, of understanding the why, but of what it can do and how we can as humans make the most and, and enjoy our lives to the best capacity. I think there's some amazing information that you passed on today. I want people to have the opportunity to learn more and to read more. I think that you've definitely hit on so many factors that my listeners are going to be like, <laughs> like where could like, they're like a sponge right now. It's like, where can I consume more of this? So where should people go? I mean, I, I saw on Amazon, you've got all of these books, but where do you, where do you suggest people go first with you and to learn more or to get more from what you're teaching? Yeah, I mean, so I actually, I 
I love my books. I put my heart in them. So I would actually encourage people to, if you're interested in learning more, which of these spoke most to you. I also have these audio programs. So if you're interested in compassion, I have this audio program called The Science of Compassion, which I think is really relevant to our times today. And you can get these on Audible. Um, so I would say like, what, you know, if you heard something today that spoke to you, I probably wrote a book about it and go there <laughs> first. Um, and also I'm, you know, uh, of the social media platforms, I'm trying to become more engaged on Instagram because what's interesting is I feel like it's a place where people right now of all the social media platforms are most embracing interdependence and the need for, uh, for uplifting one another. And so, um, you can find me on Instagram as Kelly Marie McGonigal. Okay. Uh, I know, like I started following, I'm looking at all of your stuff. I think there's some wonderful things there. If people go to a website, will will they have access to links? Yeah. Things that are there. Okay. So if I kind of go to that main link, they'll, they'll find the books and the, yep. like, like all the stuff that kellymcgonagall.com. Yeah. Okay. And from there, it's like, it, there's a wealth of information to go to. Yeah. Um, Kelly, really appreciate it. I think uh, it's been a very uplifting conversation. I think a lot of people are going to kind of listen to this and I know that people are going from like they're sticking through this entire one because the information just kept building as we as we went uh, but that they uh, they took this in and really enjoyed it I appreciate your time um, and thanks for kind of sharing everything with us and good luck in your kind of the quarantine isolation out in Palo Alto and, and I, I'm sure your students are really looking forward to having you back back in class and back thank dancing, you dancing, for moving. thank you for your commitment to continuing to produce this during during this time I think it's almost like the m most important time to be able to do this. People are looking for, you know, just something. I think to have these conversations that are in a little bit enlightening, I think, or to understand a little bit better what they're going through so they don't feel like they're so crazy, yeah. uh, but also to have options. Like, it's like, okay, like this is it, but how can I make the best of this situation? And I think a lot of people are going to shift. I think we'll come out of this and people will make better choices uh, with what's what's happening. So um, that's one thing. So Kelly, really appreciate your time. And um, I want to thank everyone once again for listening and taking the time to listen to Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. As always, um, share, let your friends know about it. These are some great topics and hopefully we can get them uh, listening in other households. And especially too, as you're heading out on your walks, which you will be doing, go outside and get your daily walks in. Uh, press play on a podcast. There's tons of them to listen to. Thanks again. Have a great day. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.